of us by demanding 100%. Colin read the uh, reading for us a bit earlier. If you've got your Bibles, um, just open them up to uh, Matthew chapter 16. Uh, If you'll bear with me, I will wait for my electronics, which are supposed to make life so much easier and faster, but really just slow us down. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 13. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for loving us. Thank you that you have done an amazing thing on the cross. Thank you that you died for love of us. Thank you that when you look upon us, you see no more our sins. Lord, we know that we should confess our sins, but we also know that you are faithful and true, and if we confess our sins, you will forgive us and forget. Thank you that because of what you have done by sending your son because of what you've done Jesus thank you that our sins are as far from us as the east is from the west thank you that they can be remembered no more they can be used against us no more there can be no accusation for those who are in Christ Jesus we thank you for that but Lord so often so often we give you 90%. Or 70. Or 2. I pray, Lord, that that as we look at this passage, we would hear your claim to 100%. Disturb us from our complacency. Disturb us with your peace. But disturb us with your call. Disturb us with your grace that we don't quite understand why you would be so gracious, but also disturb us with the knowledge of who you are. Lord, I pray that our lives would not merely coast, but that we would take up our crosses and follow you. Father, none of us are worthy, but you are. And so we come. And I pray, Lord, that you would use even these unclean lips of mine to speak to this crowd, to speak to this church, to speak to your people, to speak to us, your body. Amen. Matthew uh, chapter 16, verse 13. Let's just quickly go over it again. Jesus is there in uh, Caesarea Philippi, and he asks his disciples, "Who who do the people say that I am? And some of them say, well, Some people think you're John the Baptist, other people think you're Elijah, some think you're Jeremiah, which is a really nasty thing to say, because Jeremiah was the, oh, he was the grumbling prophet, wasn't he? Weeping, yeah, weeping, grumbling prophet. Quite appropriate that they think it's Jesus, isn't it? Actually. But some people say you're Jeremiah. Some people just go, oh, he's some prophet, one of the prophets of old. Jesus asked them, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter speaks up and he says, you're the Messiah. You are the son of the living God. And Jesus says to him, Simon, son of John, you are blessed. You didn't discover this on your own. It was shown to you by my father in heaven. And I will call you Peter, which means a rock. And on this rock, I will build my church and death itself will not have any power over it. 
I'll give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. God in heaven will allow whatever you allow on earth. He will not allow anything that you don't allow. And Jesus told them not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. You know, you'd be forgiven if you didn't know when you read the Bible and you always see Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. You'd be forgiven for thinking that Christ was his surname. Jesus Christ on the electoral roll. But, of course, um, I'm imagining that most of you know that that is not the case. Uh, Of course, Christ means uh, the anointed one. It's from the Greek Christos, which is from the Hebrew. It's, It's the translation of the Hebrew for Messiah, which is literally the anointed one. In the Old Testament, uh, traditionally, uh, three groups of people would be anointed with oil. They would be the priests, they would be the prophets, and they would be the kings. This is a a special choosing by God for a purpose, for a task, either to to speak God's message, or to um, be priests, bring people to God, or else to be God's representative as the king. Um, In the Old Testament, uh, by, by the time we come to the New Testament, uh, this idea of anointed one is most identified with the, with the person of David and the promised heir of David. First um, uh, Samuel, re- you read that God promises David that, that he will establish his throne and that one of David's descendants will be on his throne and that David's house will last forever. Your house and your throne will be established forever. And so by the time you get to the first century where we have Jesus, you see that most people in Jewish thought would identify Christ or Messiah with this promised heir of David, this throne of David, the one who would come, who would triumph over Israel's enemies, who would establish God's kingdom on earth. Now we today tend to think, Christ equals Jesus. We, we can almost leave out Jesus and just say Christ and people know who we're talking about. But if you go back to the first century in Judea, you'd find that there were actually quite a few messiahs who came and went. People who claimed to be the Christ. In fact, there's one incident at Jesus' um, uh, life where one of the people says, just leave him alone. If it's of God... They say this afterwards uh, of the church. They say, leave the church alone. If it's of God, what are we going to do? If it's not of God, well, there was this other bloke who claimed to be someone special. People followed after him. He died, and then it all fizzled out. There were lots of messiahs. There was a Judas. There was a, oh, I forget them all. Go on the internet. There's, There's a list of messiahs. There's about four in the first century alone, four people who claim to be the Messiah, including a Judas, ironically. Not, not our Judas, obviously. Um, one thing was certain. If you claim to be a Messiah, you could expect trouble to come. Because to be the Messiah was to be the king. And of course, Caesar is in charge. Rome rules, and if you turn around and say, I am the king, that's an assault against the power of Rome, and you will be dealt with by the authorities. So Jesus is here in Caesarea Philippi, which which is an interesting place today. It's called Barnea. Uh, Originally it was called Pania, 
because there was a grotto in the mountain at Caesarea Philippi, uh, which was supposedly the birthplace of Pan, who you might know is one, one of the big pagan gods. But it had been renamed by one of the Herods into Caesarea Philippi in honor of Caesar. And so it's here in the place which is named in honor of the ruling powers and, and named also in honor of the ruling deities of this world and place that Jesus brings his disciples, he brings them here on purpose to this place steeped in religion, steeped in the power authorities of the world and he says to them, who do people say that I am? And it's clear that some of the people uh, who have intersected with Jesus uh, can, can identify something of who he is. They, they say, perhaps you are a prophet. They, they know that he's speaking for God. There's, there's something there. Which is true, he does speak for God, but, but there's more to it than that. And, and Jesus looks at them and says, who do you say I am? And Peter steps forward on behalf of the others. And he turns to Jesus and he says revolutionary words. He says, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the anointed one. You are the son of the living God. In this place, named after earthly rulers and worldly gods, Peter stands up and says, you are the son of the only living God. And you are the anointed one. You are the ruler of rulers. You are the king of kings. It's the first time in Matthew that anyone has spoken to Jesus and addressed him as Christ, Messiah. Jesus is different to all the other claimants to be Messiah in that he is also says Peter here, the son of the living God. He is uniquely God's son. We see that in his birth, in his conception, in his baptism, in his temptations, in his power over nature and demons and sickness and his authority over those things. And ultimately we see it in his resurrection. Jesus looks at Peter and he says, Peter, you are blessed. You are happy is another way to put it. Not because you figured it out, Peter, but because God has shown this to you. No body can decide that Jesus is the Son of God and the Messiah by pure reasoning. Certainly not on that side of the cross and the resurrection. This side of the cross and the resurrection, there's far more proof. But for Peter there, it takes God's revelation. Here is a man who was dismissed as crazy by his family and friends. They came to take him away at one stage because they thought he was nuts. Here is a man who is opposed by the religious elite, who is about to be arrested by them. And here Peter says, you are the Messiah. Logically, you wouldn't say that. 
says, says Jesus to him, Peter, the Father has shown this to you. And this is still true today, I believe. There is so much evidence, but God opens our eyes to see who Jesus is. We need to be not only telling people about him all the time, but we need to be praying that God would take the scales off their eyes. Because once Peter knows, he knows. You can never not know again. And Jesus says to him, you are rock, and on this rock I will build my church. But we're going to skip forward. Look at what happens next in verses 20 uh, to 23. Jesus says to them, don't tell anyone that I'm the Messiah. And from that moment on, Jesus begins telling his disciples what would happen to him. And he says, I must go to Jerusalem. There the nation's leaders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law of Moses will make me suffer terribly. And I will be killed, but three days later I will rise to life again. Wow, I love that last bit. Three days later I will rise to life again. But Peter takes Jesus aside and he says, Oh, Stop it, stop it, stop it. No, no, no. May it never be. May God bless you. May it never be is what he says. God would never let this happen to you, Lord. And Jesus turns to Peter and he says, Satan, get away from me. In my way because you think like everyone else and not like God. Jesus says at the beginning, don't tell anyone that, that you know that I am the Messiah. I think because the idea of Messiah in popular thought, had this idea of king who would overthrow our enemies. King who would come in power and might and destroy all the opponents. Political military uh, liberation. People would easily get confused and think that he had come to start a revolution, which he has but not the way they think. Because Jesus straight away says, don't tell anyone, and you who know, I'm going to tell you the truth about my status as Messiah and the Son of the living God. The truth is, I have come to die and be raised to life again. I will go to Jerusalem, I will suffer, I will be killed. On the third day, I will be raised in fact, is Jesus, a bit later on, this is exactly the very reason that I came into the world. The forces of man are lined up against me. The religious leaders, the three groups that he mentions there, the, the, um, the chief priests, the nation's leaders, and the teachers of the law of Moses, these make up the Sanhedrin, the highest religious court in the land. Jesus turns to them and says, you guys know that I am the Messiah. God has shown that to you, but, but you don't yet know what that means. You need to know what it means. I will be the suffering Messiah. Which is something that the disciples, let alone the crowds outside, know very little about. He gives a prediction of the resurrection, of course, in verse 21, but, but that doesn't seem to register with my mate Peter. Because Peter pulls Jesus aside. He's telling them, I will suffer as Messiah. 
This Peter who has just been blessed by Jesus, who has received this amazing revelation from the Father that has blessed him, that, that knows that Jesus is the Messiah, he pulls Jesus aside as Jesus is explaining the Father's mission and will for, for his life here on earth. And Peter pulls him aside and says, Naughty! You don't do that! Um, this doesn't fit Peter's idea of a Messiah. Where was the deliverance of Israel? Where is the glorious future that the Messiah is supposed to bring about? You're going to die? Okay, let's talk about this Jesus. Maybe Peter's just saying, I'm going to rescue you, Jesus. You, you're slightly mad again. And in terms of, of, of etiquette of the day, if you're a disciple and you have a rabbi, the rabbi teaches you, you don't correct the rabbi. You don't correct your teacher. You just don't. You certainly don't rebuke them. Uh, um, maybe Peter's carried away. Just, just before, Jesus has said, You are rock, and on this rock I will build my church, and, and the gates of hell, the power of death, cannot stand against it, and what you loose is loosed, and what you bind is bound. And Peter's like, oh, oh, Blessed of God, me, oh, Jesus, I'm saying no. Maybe he was a bit full of himself. I think mostly though it was just Jesus was disturbing his idea of what it meant to be the anointed one of God, the son of the living God. Peter was looking at things from a human perspective, not God's perspective. And, and what we know quite clearly is that there are only two options ever in life. We think we have all the options in the world, but there are only ever two options. There's God's way, or there's not God's way, there's Satan's way. There's God's way, or there's Satan's way. Either it honors God and glorifies God and blesses God, or it doesn't. That's all it boils down to. And, and Jesus looks at Peter and he says, get away from me, Satan. Peter's not literally Satan, but, but he is Satan's lackey at that point in time. Jesus disturbed their ideas. And I think this is such an important lesson for us that we can't try and force Jesus into our models and our ways of understanding. Um, we can't transform Jesus to match my situation and my life. We, we have to allow him to mold our lives to match him. And to match his mission and his purpose. And yes, the disciples weren't completely wrong to be expecting deliverance and a glorious future. But the kingdom is coming. But it was coming in a way that was totally different to what they expected. It would involve suffering and death. And yes, Jesus would, as the Messiah, as the rightful ruler, he would go and he would confront the powers in Jerusalem. He would confront even the powers of Rome. But in that confrontation... 
he would not cry out and he would appear to lose until that is he was raised from the dead <laughs> at which point everything changes it's a disturbing prediction from Jesus and things get even more disturbing in verses 24 to 27 Jesus says to them if any of you want to be my followers can you imagine hearing that you've spent the last three years walking with Jesus following Jesus dedicating your life to Jesus and he turns around and says if any of you want to be my followers as in we're only getting started if any of you want to be my followers you must forget about yourself. You must take up your cross and follow me. Because if you want to save your life, you're going to lose it. You will destroy it. But if you give up your life for me, you will find it. What will you gain if you own the whole world but destroy yourself? What would you give to get back your soul? The cross is one of the most barbarous, horrendous, horrific forms of execution there ever was. We were explaining it at youth group. One of the kids asked how, how you died on a cross. And the nails through the hands and the hanging there and the weariness and the asphyxiation as you, as you can't breathe. The weight of your own body and your energy is sapped from you and you die. I mean, this is the fate of Jesus. This is what he says he is going to do. This is, this is good Friday. But Jesus now turns around and he says to his disciples, I'm going to suffer. And if you want to follow me, if you want to follow me, you must die to yourself. You must die to your own will and you must take up God's will. You must follow me. You must... Even as I do what God wills, you must do as God wills. I think the cross is not only the place where Jesus died for us, taking our, our sins for us, but it is also, it stands for doing the will of the Father. What did Jesus say in the garden? He said, not my will be done, but yours be done. It involves denying yourself and taking up the cross, following Jesus, doing God's will, actually doing it. A person who tries to hang on to their own purpose and will and, and desires will reject what God desires for them and ultimately lose everything that they try and protect in this life. You can meditate till the cows come home. You can explore your chakra. I don't even know what that is. It's probably something very rude. You can do all the self-examination that you want to do, but you can have the most amazing life here, but what's the point? On the other hand, those who 
let loose their own self-centered desires and instead accept God's will and do what God desires, which by the way means following Jesus because he perfectly shows us how to follow God's will and purpose. We instead discover a true life. We find salvation in Christ. We find his righteousness and, and we will receive a life in the kingdom of God. At the end of the day, says verse 26, at the end of the day, all of the physical pleasures and riches and powers of this world are useless if I forfeit myself. Soul, self, very similar words there. At the end of this life, we are meant, measured by our spiritual health, not our wealth. And it's not something that we can do just on Sunday mornings. If any of you wants to be my followers, take up your cross and deny yourself every moment of every day. It's a good question for me. Do I, moment by moment, minute by minute, examine what I want in light of what God wants for me? In light of what God wants me to do? In light of what God wants me to be? Because the more we do that, the more our lives will be transformed to love and to think like Jesus. Uh, I do notice here that Jesus speaks this call to his disciples after they've made a commitment. They've already decided to follow Jesus, and Jesus again says to them, if you want to follow me. Following Jesus is not something you decide to do when you're 13 and then just coast for the rest. It's a decision we make every moment of every day. Jesus disturbs everyone who would follow him because doing so means giving up our lives for his sake. What does that mean for you? It might not literally mean dying, but what are we willing to do for God? Or how often do we go, God, that, that, I'm not comfortable with that. I mean, God's not going to send us into places which, which aren't good for us, but, but sometimes he sends us into places which are dangerous and uncomfortable. The point, says Jesus in verse 27 and 28, is that it's better to be disturbed now by Jesus than to be disturbed when Jesus comes back because he is coming back the son of man will soon come in the glory of the father with his angels to reward all people for what they have done you think oh he's going to reward us for what they've done fantastic if we've done good things but the reward for evil is judgment It is costly to follow Jesus. It will mean suffering. It will mean denying ourselves. It will mean taking up the cross. It might mean losing our lives, literally. But then again, 
following Jesus is the only way to save our lives. Where the Son of Man has died, he will also come in glory. See, on that night when, when one of these twelve, whom Jesus said, if any of you want to follow me, or one of these twelve who were there, decided, I don't want to follow you, Jesus. And on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he ate a Passover meal with, with his disciples. And he took some bread and he broke it and he said to them, this is my body which I have broken for you. Remember me every time you do this. And he took some wine and he drank it and he passed it around and they all had some and then he said, that's my blood. The blood of the new covenant between God and people. My blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins, for the forgiveness of many. I'm not going to drink it again until the kingdom when I return, but when you drink it, remember me. And then he was arrested, as he said here, he was the Messiah, doing what the Messiah does, following the will of God, beaten, tortured, mocked, crucified. crying out to God, dying. And as he dies, the curtain temple tears in half. The most holy place where God, the Jewish people, believed was, was most holy. Suddenly there's access into the very presence of God as Jesus dies because of his blood. And then three days later he rises again and he is coming back. We're going to partake in communion but we're going to do it differently. There is a curtain. It's torn in two. <laughs> it's a red curtain. One by one we're going to go through We'll line up one by one, go through. Go in. As you go in, remember that it is by the blood of Christ that you can do so, only because he took up his cross. As you take your communion, take as long as you need. Take the bread, take the cup. Eat, drink, and remember what he has done and ask yourself, will I take up my cross to follow Jesus? Say a prayer, if you want to say a prayer. And when you're done, come out and the next person will go in. We'll go, we'll line up when you're ready, first person. Um, once we're all done, we'll come sit down and together we will sing. Because as individuals, we go into the presence of God by what Jesus has done and we are formed into one body. <laughs>